Howdy, everybody. The following is a recorded discussion with Chaplain Raymond, our Attorney General for the Republic State of Texas. We have been discussing a book called The Authority of Law by Charles A. Wiseman. Today we finished up Chapter 5, Federal Laws and Crimes, with the nature and status of U.S. codes and positive law. Hope you enjoy. Today is March 1st, and we're covering the Maxims uh, email from February 28th. 2011, and uh, we're in the public state of this, and today's maxim was, he who has jurisdiction to loosen has jurisdiction to bind. It always amazed me how they did that in reverse. You would think if they have, you have jurisdiction to bind, you also could loosen it a little. Anyway, um, that's pretty straightforward. It's to cover the negative. So let's just go on now to page 37, which is the last page of yesterday's. The nature and status of the U.S. Code. Anytime we talk about the word nature, it becomes a an important concept to learn and know. Because one of the biggest questions you could ever ask is, what is the nature and theory of the law that you're you're depending upon? Because the nature and theory, the particular one, dictates the procedures that you should be allowed to use in your defense. Not knowing the nature means you don't know the procedures. To defend yourself means you could be using the wrong ones. And that never works. So the nature and status of the U.S. Code. With the U.S. Code, the laws of the statutes at large were not only revised in content, but in form and style. When incorporated into the U.S. Code, all titles and enacting clauses were removed, making the nature of the laws and their source of authority unknown. Laws within the statutes at large were identified as being either public or private laws. Now, that's before the codes were, were written. Acts which were laws, resolutions, or proclamations were so designated by their identifying enacting clauses and titles. But no one can tell the nature of the laws in the U.S. Code. When the U.S. Code was first published, it never was stated to be the official laws of the United States. Rather, it was stated that the code was a restatement of law, or was only prima facie evidence of the laws of the United States. On this matter, one court stated, the United States Code was not enacted as a statute, nor can it be construed as such. It is only a prima facie statement of the statute law. 
If construction is necessary, recourse must be had to the original statutes themselves so that anyone relying upon the code always has the opportunity to move it back to the statutes. This tells us that the United States Code, as originally established, was not on an equal plane with the original statutes or the statutes at large. The evidence of a thing is not the thing itself. Thus, the code was not true law. Now, I'll repeat that. The evidence of a thing is not the thing itself. Thus, the code was not true law. With the start of regular use of the U.S. Code, numerous problems arose in that it in that it contained mistakes, errors, and inconsistencies as compared to the statutes at large. Thus, in 1947, Congress enacted several of the titles into positive law, such as the Act to Codify and Enacted to and Enacted into Positive Law, Title one of the United States Code. In doing so, they devised some new terminology. United States Code. The matter set forth in the edition of the Code of Laws of the United States, current at any time, shall together with the then current supplement, if any, establish prima facie the laws of the United States general and permanent in their nature, in force on the day preceding the commencement of the session following the last session, the legislation of which is included. Does that sound very confusing? Providing, however, that whenever titles of such code shall have been enacted into positive law, this is the important part, the text thereof shall be legal evidence of the laws therein contained. In all of the courts of the United States, the several states, and the territories and insular possessions, <coughs> excuse me, possessions of the United States. I must take a drink. Note the new term, legal evidence. But what are these titles legal evidence of? It does not say these titles of the code are legal evidence of the statutes of Congress or of the laws of the United States. They are legal evidence of the laws therein contained. In other words, the fact that the laws are in the code is in itself legal evidence that they exist. So what? Such a statement really says nothing at all about the legal nature of those laws. It doesn't explain anything about its nature or its legal status other than its own existence. This is like saying, if a hammer is in your hand, then that hammer in your hand stands as legal evidence 
of the hammer in your hand. But it does not say anything about the legal nature of the hammer. Is it your hammer or is it borrowed, stolen or lost? Is it the property of the government or Joe Smith or the XYZ Corporation? Likewise, saying that the laws in a book are evidence of those laws in the book says nothing at all about their nature. Are they acts of Congress or the state of Florida or of the United Nations? It does not say, but only makes the generalized remark that they are laws. It obviously does not mean that these laws are constitutionally enacted or exist constitutionally. Congress or lawyers in Congress have made this statement to make it appear that there is a difference between the code as it was from the title that had been enacted into positive law. There really is no significant difference between prima facie evidence and legal evidence. Prima facie evidence is legal evidence, just as circumstantial evidence is legal evidence. Even hearsay evidence, when relevant to an issue, can be treated as legal evidence. The term legal evidence is just a more general term for most types of evidence. Here's an example. Legal evidence, a broad general term meaning all admissible evidence, including both oral and documentary. Whether Congress has enacted a title into positive law is irrelevant. It does not change it into a law of the United States. One federal court said that Congress's failure to enact a title into positive law has only evidentiary significance. In other words, it does not affect the nature of what it is legally. The court further said, like it or not, the Internal Revenue Code is the law. It can indeed be called law, but what manner of law is it? Why did the court not say that it was an act of Congress or a law under the Constitution? Another court said regarding the code that enactment into positive law only affects the weight of the evidence. This is because the title has gone through extra proofreading and checking to remove the errors and inconsistencies. This measure does not change the legal nature of the title of the code, such as occurs when a bill, when it is enacted into law. The words legal evidence were used to convince people that some change occurred when in fact it is just a lot of double talk and does not change the nature of what the U.S. Code really is. It makes no difference if the title has been enacted into positive law, for its content cannot be regarded as acts of Congress, because they have no evidence of being such by way of enacting clauses. The greatest evidence of true law is that which bears an enacting clause. A federal law requires 
an enacting clause to make it a law coming from the authorized source, Congress. The object of an enacting clause is to show that the act comes from a place pointed out by the Constitution as the source of power. The laws in the U.S. Code are unnamed. They show no sign of authority. They carry with them no evidence that Congress or any other lawmaking power is responsible for them. They lack the essential requisites to make them a law authorized under Article I of the Constitution for the United States. Look back at the cases cited which stated that the criminal jurisdiction of the United States exists only by acts of Congress pursuant to the Constitution. If the question is put forth to a federal court whether the code cited in an indictment is an, is an act of Congress, they could not rightfully say it is. If the court says it is, they should be asked, where is the Congressional Enacting Clause for that law as required by 61 Statutes at Law 633-634, Section 101? If no such clause appears on the face of the law, it is not an act of Congress. No criminal jurisdiction exists without a bona fide act of Congress. The argument in such a case is that the indictment does not set forth a case arising under the Constitution as there is no act of Congress with the duly required enacting clause. Thus, there is no subject matter jurisdiction pursuant to the federal judicial power defined in Article 3, Section 2. Nowhere does it say in the code or in pronouncements by Congress or the courts that the laws of the U.S. Code are acts of Congress. In fact, the code is always regarded as something different from the statutes at large. But no one denies that the official source to find United States laws is the statutes at large. And the code is only prima facie evidence of such laws. <clears throat> Statute. State laws are generally called session laws, occasionally acts, while federal laws are called public laws, such as Public Law 89-110, which is the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and which can be found in 79 Statutes at Large 437, 1965, the latter being the official and preferred citation. The Statutes at Large are recognized by everyone to be the, the official publication of federal laws. Why is not the U.S. Code even when enacted into positive law, ever called the official source of United States laws. Could it be because the laws in the code are only the degrees, decrees 
of some committee? Positive law. The term positive law is also misleading. Positive law is a general designation for a law that is actually ordained or established under human sanctions as distinguished from the law of nature or natural law. Any rule or law established and written out by human agency is positive law. In this sense, the U.S. Code was from the beginning a type of positive law being written and established by human sanctions, that is, the Committee of the House of Representatives. The U.S. Code is also declared to be a codification of all the general and permanent laws of the United States. But the Articles of War, a treaty, or an executive order can also be called general and permanent laws of the United States or positive law. They are laws that exist under the United States, but they are clearly of a different nature than acts of Congress, which a citizen can be indicted for violating. We thus come again to the question of authority. What is the authority for citizens to follow the laws in the U.S. Code? None legally exists unless one acquiesces to such law. There's that word. When Congress enacts sections of the code into positive law, they do so by passing a law, as they did with Title 18, say, stating to the effect that Title 18 of the United States Code entitled Crimes and Criminal Procedure is hereby revised, codified, and enacted into positive law and may be cited as 18 U.S.C. as follows. The, title, the text of Title 18 then follows. The measure does not really change anything since this title had already been positive law, just it had already been codified. The state legislatures often do the same thing with their revised statutes. They pass a law saying that the material in a certain collection of books is a law. But it is fundamental that nothing can become a law just because the legislature says it is a law. Nothing becomes a law simply and solely because men who possess the legislative power will that it shall be that it shall be, unless they express their determination to that effect in the mode pointed out by the instrument which invests them with the power and under all the forms which that instrument has rendered essential. The forms of legislation included, include a title and an acting clause. They are both essential aspects of law. This excerpt was quoted by the Supreme Court of Arkansas, who also said, All those rules and solemnities, whether derived from the common law 
were prescribed by the Constitution, which are of the essentials of lawmaking, must be observed and complied with. Without such observance and compliance, the will of the legislature can have no validity as law. The U.S. Code is none of the forms and solemnities that are essential to make it law which citizens in America are subject to, and Congress cannot make it law by its say-so. It might be argued that the U.S. title in question has an enacting clause and a title as it exists in the statutes at large, and this is sufficient for the text of the entire title of the code. In the past, some courts did hold that the titles on the specialized code were sufficient for the entire code. Title 18 thus could only be called valid laws of the United States if its contents are cited from the statutes at large. But the government never cites Title 18 from the statutes at large on indictment. It only cites it as published in the U.S. Code, which is absolutely no enacting clauses on its face. It is always 18 U.S.C. 1951 instead of the 62 statutes at large, 1084. The difference is critical. The U.S. Code is not law of Congress, but it has fooled everyone because the laws used in it by the committee were based upon laws once passed by Congress. If Congress passed some laws which were then codified by the Russian government, which code was later recognized by Congress, no one would accept laws cited from the Russian code as valid law of Congress. A Russian law against forgery cannot be charged against this just because an identical law exists in our state. Now suppose, for instance, I listed some laws for you to follow, such as, you shall not steal. You shall not murder anyone. You shall not kidnap anyone. You shall not commit adultery. Now let me ask you, is there any authority behind these laws I have written and declared? Nearly everyone would say there is because they recognize that God issued similar laws. And thus, there is authority behind them. But God didn't issue these laws or enact them as law. I did. I never said they are laws of God, but are my laws. They thus have no authority as law because I am not a source of law to which you are subject. There is no legal relationship between you and myself, just as there is no legal relationship between you and the Law Revision Council that drafted the U.S. Code. Now you see at this point we've come full circle. This last paragraph has given an example of the author stating some laws and establishing that he doesn't have a relationship with you. 
such that he could be a source of laws that you would be required to follow. So the source and its relationship are essential to be subjects of a given law. Is that the end of it today? Yes, I think it is. Okay. Are there any questions about this portion on authority of law? Yes. What is the remedy? <laughs> what, what are you asking? I'm sorry. Well, there's a lot of people in jail today on Title 26 that's not law. What's the remedy? Now, are you saying they shouldn't be there? Absolutely. What if they consented to it? It's still fraud. Who asserts that? The guy in jail, the one in jail should have asserted it. People need to understand that. That's right, but they need to have knowledge first. Is it my responsibility to give them knowledge? No, but I'm back to the question. What's the remedy? Knowledge. Whose responsibility do you think it is to correct it? responsibility to correct it is going to be given to us when we get our republics working properly. It is we the people. That's right. We the people. And the only way we will be able to be put in a position to do that is to have the lawful means. Okay. So, it, most people react to it and saying somebody ought to fix that. That is wrong. And the first is to have them fix it themselves. Now, I didn't intend to... I want you to understand that the real problem here is that they are using commercial law. Signatures were obtained. Let me give you an illustration. If you had property that belonged to you and you would give it to someone for safekeeping, would you not receive from them some sort of receipt signed by them that you could keep in your possession so that you could have a claim check to go get it back. It would be, Is that it would, not correct? Yeah. It would depend on who I was dealing with, but in normal circumstances, yes, you're correct. You park your car in the parking lot and you get a claim check. Now, 
why, when people are arrested, do they stand at the window turning over everything in their pockets? Why don't they get a receipt from the guy they're handing it to? Why does that man standing there sign it? Why does the... Ignorance? uh, No knowledge? No, but think about the legal ramifications. He's consenting. That's right. Grant them jurisdiction in writing. And for commerce, there must be a signature. So, anyway, your point is somebody needs to fix it, and our point is we need to be responsible and should have been all along and not allow this to happen, but we became very fat and sassy, well taken care of, an advanced standard of living, free, freedom to do lots of things and not watch what the left hand was doing. And so we gave up. We gave up our rights. We agreed to become subjects of a corporation. Now, we are the de jure Texas government working to put in place that which should change it. But then again, it's not going to happen overnight. County by county by county. Once this information and people in the counties begin to act in a self-government sense, you will gradually reverse that and change it. But there's not going to be any sudden uh, overnight switch that can be thrown. And yes, there's lots of people who are in prison who have consented to be there. Well, there was a Supreme Court judge, and I don't, can't recall his name right now, that said 99% of the people in prison today volunteered to be there. That's correct. But they didn't know they volunteered. Okay. That's right. That's fraud. Yes, it's wrong. And? Also an unconscionable contract. And who has the power to change it? The guy that signed the contract. Correct. But he only has... And how does he do that? He what? only has the power if he knows he has it. Yes, but you need, I'm trying to get to a point here. Okay. Can you do it for him? 
if you contract with him and get his authority to do it, yes. But he doesn't have the authority until he gets out of those other contracts. Say what? All those other contracts are prior covenants. He, who can do it for him? He has to do it himself. And you have to sign it yourself. And you have to stand there and do it. And you have to experience that emotion that comes over it that says, well, what happens after, after I do this? Well, you can't have a bank account. You might lose your job. So, it takes a great deal of courage. Now, thank God there was lots of people that went before us that have done the research and found some things out. And there is... What is our next chapter, Chuck? Procedure, Jurisdiction, and Arguments. Starting tomorrow... We see the mechanics that had to be left in place. They had to leave them there. Now, why? Because the maxim that says, where there is no remedy, there is no law. So if they had been enacted a law, that did not have a remedy available, it would be discounted under prior covenant and prior law that would prohibit it from being law. So this is a, a provision or a method or a procedure or a process that they could not remove. But it's all the way upstream. You have to swim all that, through all that detail and fight all those USC statutes and get to where you realize I am at the fountainhead of their power that they use to control me. And they were willing to risk it. Because Everyone must do it one at a time. And so they got millions already. How little harm is my one going to do it? And so get, they get to the point where they realize we must let this one go. He's declared his rights. He knows what his rights are. And he's standing on them. Now, if you'll remember the diagram that we produced for Parker County, which shows starting up a first estate, we had in the diagram the picture in which it says, in a properly commenced 
judicial proceeding. Now, what I really should probably add to that block is the word commercial. And he properly commenced commercial judicial proceeding. You, under, under grace and notice, you tell them of the fraud and give them 30 days to rebut it. Now, when we were doing it back when, we gave them a second and 15 days and even a third grace period of 15 days because they had adopted the position of saying, well, we have so much paper coming across our desk. If we missed this, we would have answered, uh, but we missed it. Uh, we need good faith mistake. So we started saying, okay, at the end of 30 days, we'll send another 15-day grace notice telling them, in case you mislead it, now they can't claim they've mislead it. You've extended their period of time in order to tell you whether or not whether they're going to rebut your affidavit, which claims that it was fraudulent. Remember, this is all commercial. Ultimately, you get no responses. Zero. Now, in your grace notice, you indicated that if you fail to hear from them, you give them another notice so to speak, and it says, uh, in notice of intent to file a default judgment, me, he'll visit. No words. No words. So, when they do not speak, because you've also put it in a place where the only way that the response could come back is if it was done under penalty of perjury. And they were misleading everyone to think it was law and it wasn't. They cannot continue to say it is without jeopardizing their own personal lives. So you get no word. Zero. Now, Back then, we used to try to do it on our own. We would count them to notice that we had not received anything. Well, this was generally put aside as not being able to trust you to speak to yourself. So we gradually adopted the, the procedure of using a notary presentment, an independent third party who does the paperwork for the properly commenced commercial proceeding, judicial proceeding, and is the one who keeps track of the responses and is the one who files an affidavit of non-response when they don't. 
that is a properly commenced judicial proceeding that takes you off and out of those contracts. In effect, you've revoked all your signatures, ab initio, on all of those contracts. But it means you do not have insurance. You do not have a driver's license. You do not even have a telephone or a bank account. You have removed yourself from those contracts. Now, if you have any religious feelings, it's sort of like saying you're not allowed to engage and can't buy or sell without a number and in those contracts. So, we have advanced, that was 15 years ago. Now, they've, they've never, they've always not responded because they have the penalty of perjury hanging over them. And they're getting bolder, I notice, to just ignore it, say nothing. And still move. But tomorrow we're going to talk about the procedures, especially the one related to subject matter jurisdiction. You will begin to see the mechanics of a remedy. That's in addition to the one I was just talking about with regard to properly commenced judicial proceeding. Now, it's my understanding that uh, Mr. Chastangs and Mr. Wren have done the properly commenced proceedings for, you know, some time ago. Am I correct in assuming that? Are you talking about the UCC-1? Well, the UCC-1 or a revocation of powers of attorney or well I did the uh, UCC one program the one Howard Griswold had in what is it 89 87 89 and I kept it on file or kept it filed yes I have done that secured party creditor This is John. I misunderstood what you said first. No, I have not done that. I'm, I'm ready to move forward with that as soon as. Hello. Yeah, I think he uh, faded out. He's a, we lost the connection here somewhere. Yeah. It's not showing anything on the screen. That's hard to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he fell back in his chair. All right. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and end it here.